0: Welcome to the audiobook version of the novel Mercy Not Sacrifice by Dan Parks read by the author. Chapter 1 The beginning is the end. If hindsight is 2020, then foresight at its best is blurry. I sit here now in a scene that I could have never predicted. At my feet is a child in the shallow part of the river. He's behind the dike where the current slows and is almost still. His blonde hair is matted to the side of his head and mud is stuck to the heels of his feet. To my left, at a table underneath the sycamore tree, is a woman with a knife. She slices through flesh, tearing it from the bone. A bridge off in the distance is high above the water. It looks different now from down below. Higher than from above, as if a fall would be too much for a body to take. A truck crests over the incline of its entrance and the driver blows his horn and waves down at me. I close my eyes and the warm summer breeze blows across the river and brings in with it the sweet scent of a life well lived. The body of the young boy in the water now lies face down and I stand up concerned. Time is slow. I rush to the water with the intention of rescuing him, but he jerks his head out of the water and bounces to his feet. I held my breath for one minute, he says. I look to the woman at the table preparing the meat. One whole minute, Johnny, she says. I smile. That's amazing, Jenny. And I am happy, and it is good. But let me tell you that it wasn't always so. I found myself hiding behind a door in a bathroom with no need to be in there except to escape into myself. I splashed some water on my face and looked into the mirror and saw my fleeting eyes and looked away. Putting my hands in my pocket, I felt it. I'd forgot it was there. I took the razor blade out and placed it against my wrist. Nobody knew what you did in San Francisco, I said. I saw three loud knocks on the old wooden door, and with each impact, the grain of the wood bent. It had breath, and unlike me, had life. You in there, Johnny? He asked. It's time to go. My mind was stuck on the water. I saw it from above, and when I followed her to the edge, everything was red. The bridge, her dress, and the color running down my skin. She climbed atop the rail and swung herself around the beam. Come with me, she said. Lori, I can't, I responded. She turned her back to me and gazed towards the side of the bridge that faced the jail in the city. If you loved me, she said. Then she spun just enough so the silhouette of her face shone on the concrete of the walkway you would follow she said i heard a phone ring and it brought me back to a new reality i'm getting him now he said we'll be right down the metal of the razor blade touched my skin with its indifferent charm but i stopped myself before it went deep enough to pierce my skin and put it in my pocket hiding its harshness away for another hour i took a deep breath and walked to the mirror and straightened my tie Going to the door and grasping the doorknob, my hand began to tremble. I started to reach for the blade and its familiar comfort, but I stopped myself once more. Mercy, I said. Opening the door to the world outside myself made me feel like a boy without a mother to bandage up his hurt, or a son without a father to lead him into the ball field. Johnny, Lenny said. It's time. Lenny was my older cousin by three years. He was a head taller than most and was an agreeable type. Light blonde hair was clippered short atop his head. Two things were memorable about him. His smile and how pretty his wife was. Following Lenny out of the bathroom, past the casket, and around rows of chairs, we walked to the huddle of men where Matt Jones was giving a pep talk. We take the casket from over there, he said, and place it in the hearse. Matt Jones was the funeral director in Gardenstown. As a small man, he kept a strong face and an even stronger voice. He looked down at the paper in his hand. Three on each side, Matt Jones said. Bill, Lenny, and Ian on the left. Stephen, Johnny, and Edmund on the right. He looked over each face in the huddle. Did you get that, Edmund? Lenny giggled. The name's Ed, Ed said. My mother calls me Edmund. Ed Daniels was a year older than me. He had average grades in school and made the basketball team. And after high school graduation, he went to work at the local factory in town. He was married now with a wife and one child, and the other one was on the way. You're Edmund today because that's the way it is in the program, Matt Jones says. Let's get it together, boys. He looked back at the casket. That's a good man in there, and he deserves our best in this hour. The double doors of the funeral home opened, and a burst of sunshine flooded the dark room. Rick Days placed rubber jams underneath the doors to hold them in place. He was a tall and handsome man, and in the 80s he had been a basketball star in Gardenstown, and he hadn't gained an ounce of weight since. His go-to joke was that he had more marriages than losses during his high school career. Four different women, but only three losses during his four years. That brought two state championships. He had been the muscle around the funeral home for almost three decades. The car's ready, Matt, he said. We carried the casket out the front door to the shiny black hearse of the curb. All right, boys, Rick Day said. Just set it on the tracks and let her slide. He walked behind Ian and Ed, taking the back handles of the casket, pushing it inside the car and locking it into place. The pallbearers regrouped to the side of the hearse, but I had wandered away again. Rick will be driving the men in the van, and I'll be leading the way to the church with the body, said Matt Jones. As a child letting go of his balloon into a blue and cloudless sky, I floated up and away. I looked down on the scene as a spectator. A cloud had wandered in and settled in the way of the sun, blocking out the light that was once there. A squirrel ran down from the playground of the school up on the hill. It scampered through the shadow of the cloud and hopped over to the hearse. The squirrel stood on its legs and clutched its hands together as if to pray. And when finished, it turned around and ran back up to the hill where it came. Johnny, Lenny said. He waved me over to the black pallbearers van. I came to and ducked my head down and got in the back seat. Matt drove the hearse forward, and the funeral caravan began. Dr. Healer had told me to get out of my own head and to center my thoughts on something outside of myself. Sitting behind my older brother, Ian. I made my focal point the roll of fat on the back of his neck. Ian was two inches shorter than me and 200 pounds heavier. He had been in track and field, but after college when he started at the bank, he gained most of the weight. He looked like my dad with a short nose and strong forehead and had the same blue eyes and was my mother's favorite because of it. It was then that an image of Ian's oldest son, Jeffrey, flashed in my mind. Jeffrey gonna be there, I asked. I could see Jeffrey in the hospital bed. His eyes blackened from the impact of the water. Ian, I said, is Jeffrey going to be at the service? The whole family is going to be there, he responded. I stared out the window and saw a quiet morning, falling autumn leaves blown up against the concrete retaining wall opposite the funeral home. It was as if Gardenstown had kept still in reference of the day. If only my mind had done the same. I saw into the back of it where I kept all my secrets and where I stored a picture of Jeffrey. It was a memory that I wish I didn't have. Him, unconscious, lying on his back, alone in the room and in his world, his arm hanging off the bed, and just above the IV dangled the marks of his pain. Rick Days made the turn from Market Street on the 3rd and up the hill towards the school. I've got a lot on my mind, Ian said. Did you bring Mom? Yeah, I responded. Lenny nudged me in the stomach with his elbow. You all right, Johnny? He asked. Your face looks awful white. I'm fine, I said. The drive was not far to the church, and as we approached St. Michael's Catholic School, the hearse stopped. Ah, shit, Rick Day said. The crosswalks blocked with the barriers. In the morning at St. Michael's, two students would set out the barriers in the front doors to block the pathway, one on each side of the painted yellow lines of the street. In the evening, just after the last bell had rung, the same students would carry them off the street and stack them over by the bike rack. Rick, I said, let me out, and I'll get them. People were shutting the doors of their Fords, Chevrolets, and Dodges in the parking lot that was shared by the church and the school, and they were walking towards the funeral. An old man headed towards me with a limp and a cane. "'Hello, Johnny,' he said. I recognized him as a man that used to work as a truck driver for my Grandpa John. "'Hi, Big Joe,' I responded. "'How you getting along?' Big Joe had a full face that bore blonde-colored stubble. His eyes were dark and sunk like pits into his school. He wore blue jean overalls and slip-on boots. Big Joe smelt like a man who had lived without the care of a good woman. Oh, I'm not, he said. I guess that's him in there? Big Joe pointed back at the hearse. Yes, I said. That's Grandpa John. Oh, responded Big Joe. A tear fell down his wrinkled cheek. He meant so much to me, he said. Your whole family has. Come on, Johnny, Rick Daze said. Clock's ticking. Duty calls, I said. I'll see you inside. I patted him on the back in a gesture of appreciation as if I could repay all of what Big Joe had given to my family. He had given his life to the business, and there was no greater love than that. I grabbed the yellow wooden barriers and moved them over towards the school, and Big Joe began his walk back to the church, and stopped only after a few steps, and grabbed a flask out of his inner pocket and took a long, laborious pull. I took a nostalgic look back at the school before I got into the van, but I became dizzy from the cocktail of emotions the memories gave me. I had good ones of my time at St. Michael's, but I also had one, that I kept hidden, even for myself. When parked at the church, we gathered behind the hearse. Rick worked the casket out, and Matt gave the instructions. Same order as before, Matt Jones says, but this time we take the feet in first. Ian and Ed grabbed the foot of the box and pulled it out. Lenny and I took the middle, and Bill and Stefan took the head. Bill was Lenny's older brother. He was short, with red hair that he wore on a flat top. He had graduated with a degree in business and worked and lived in Kansas City, where he managed a textbook distributing business. Stefan was married to my Uncle Archie's only daughter, Kylie. They lived in Gardenstown, too, but he worked out of town for a traveling construction company. Stephen was tall and lean and had the rough hands and suntan skin of a working man. He had a long and narrow nose with beaming white teeth and short brown hair. We carried the casket up the many steps as the sun had begun to come out of its hiding, and over in the yard above the church rectory, the same squirrel from below had made his way up the hill and sat atop the tree stump. Resting on his tail, it watched the casket be carried inside. Matt and Rick held open the door to the foyer of the church. Come on in, Matt Jones said. We'll set the casket on the cart and I'll take it from there. It had been a while since I was inside St. Michael's Catholic Church. Off to the right was a life-sized sculpture of a dead Jesus. He hung on the cross and blood poured from his hands and feet in his side. What was the point of displaying that sacrifice, I wondered. Ian and Stefan dipped their hands in the holy water and blessed themselves with the sign of the cross. Lenny and Rick did the same when they had seen the others, but I passed on the water. Follow the priest in, Rick days said. My body moved forward behind Stefan, but my mind was fixed on the past. I had never seen a priest that looked like this one, and I was sure the congregation of St. Michael's hadn't either. The church was full, and the people in the pews stood as we passed by. Grandpa John didn't have many friends in his last few years, but he had had plenty of life acquaintances in attendance that day. My mom sat in the back half-pew on the left corner by the side door. She had never learned to feel comfortable in her life unless there was an exit nearby. Lori's parents and her grandmothers were halfway up. Lori's dad, Tim Lane, was a stern man with cold eyes, but if he allowed you in, the warmth of his heart could unfreeze the Arctic. Her mother, Abra, was a kind woman with auburn hair and full red cheeks and walked in a delicate manner as if the floor was made of glass. Lori's grandmother, salt and Pepper, stood next to them, as they had for a lifetime. The walk up the aisle to the altar took a day's time. A statue of Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, was dressed in a shepherd's cloak and held a cane. He acted as a protector for the baby Jesus during his life, and that day he guarded over the service as his eyes followed each of my steps. When I passed, it looked as if he had raised his left hand to welcome me, but it might also have been a command for me to stop. Lori stood in the middle of the third pew on the left. She looked up from the funeral program, and her pupils of red captured me. She opened her mouth and said just as before come with me the priest stopped at the end of the aisle and blessed the casket and walked with the altar boys to their chairs the pallbearers sat to the right and the immediate family was to the left i was in the far corner by the aisle my dad sat in the first row with the family and when i looked at him i saw more of ian than myself and realized that i didn't want to be either both had failed marriages and on top of that my dad now married others my cousin kylie walked up to give the first reading from the old testament of the bible She was an almost pretty woman, in her mid-thirties with one child. She had kept some of the weight on after the birth, but had retained with it a motherly charm. She favored her mother, with the same freckled cheeks and strawberry blonde hair. Her dress had been taken from the front of the closet that day, past the pantsuits she wore for work and across from the clothes she wore afterwards. Before she read, she straightened the collar of her dress. A reading from the book of Hosea, Kylie said. For I desire mercy, and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. When she finished, she made a kissing gesture towards the text. This has been a reading from the word of the Lord, she said. As she returned to her seat, Lenny's wife Vera rose from the pew and exited to the aisle and walked to the altar. All the men watched when Vera walked. She wore a fitted black dress just above the knees. It had a lace detail on the hem and matching long sleeves with a scooped neck that was low enough to draw attention. Vera had high cheekbones and a practiced smile. Her hair was cropped at the chin and was rich chocolate in color. She paused just long enough in order to gain the congregation's attention. A reading from the book of Matthew, Vera said. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teachers eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The priest then rose and walked to the front of the casket. He was a dark-skinned man in his fifties. The circles around his eyes were darker than the skin on his face. His eyes projected a calmness and his smile was a beacon of peace. Hello, my name is Simon Chopra, and we gather here today to celebrate the life of John Carmen, he said. I had the pleasure of getting to know John before he passed and it was one of the great joys of my life. It is today that we honor him. Let me allow the life that he lived and his descendants to tell the story.